is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Edens. In today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The kids are far from all right. New data from the CDC showing just how much the pandemic has impacted teens. Nearly half of them surveyed, reporting that they feel persistently sad or hopeless in the past year. So we will go in-depth into what exactly is driving these feelings and what parents can do to help. A group right here in Southern California has gone on a rescue mission in Ukraine to help people with disabilities leave the country while Russia attacks. We'll find out about how the group is helping people start a new life. And we will head back to Ukraine for an update on a man who is from a city that has been under heavy Russian attack. His dad and friend were nearly killed in a bombing. Amazon workers in New York City make company history. Voting to start a union will go in-depth into what that means for the company and the rest of its workers. L.A. City settles a big lawsuit over its homeless crisis. The county, though, holding out, but for how long? The House passes a bill that would make marijuana legal. We'll look into whether it stands a chance in the U.S. Senate. And bongs, yes, bongs might be fun for people who like to smoke pot, but not so much for others around them. There's a new study that finds secondhand bong smoke is dangerous. The great bong debate. The great bong debate coming up. <laughs> okay, well, we start with teens and mental health. Dr. Mo Gelbart is Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So this sure. latest study paints a, a pretty devastating and sad picture of what teenage people in this country have gone through because of the pandemic. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, we have, are experiencing the highest rates among teens of anxiety and depression and substance abuse that we've really ever had. And, you know, when, we, when I think about it, that's on top of prior to the pandemic, you know, teenage mental health was uh, pretty difficult as well. Probably 20% of young kids prior to pandemic were experiencing significant mental health issues. And so this has certainly, you know, become a burden on top of all of that. Dr. Galbart, do these findings surprise you? They, no, they don't surprise me. They worry me, of course. They're, you know, on one hand, they worry me on the other, but they do not surprise me. On the other hand, uh, you know, I think it's important and, and actually good that a light is being shown on it so we can get some help, we can get some resolution. Uh, the school districts, for example, that I work with are really on top of the uh, social and emotional wellness of their students. So, you know, the, the, the whole mental health issue in our society, I think, is starting to creep out under from under the stigma a lot more than it has in years prior. You know, I was reading um, an article the other day, and perhaps you saw it as well, about how a lot of uh, teenagers are reluctant now, even in schools where they can take off their masks, they're reluctant to do so because they feel insecure because they've spent two years not really seeing one another. They don't know what one another, you know, really looks like. And they're at that age. So they're kind of afraid if they take their masks off, people won't like them. And that's a problem in and of itself. Oh, no doubt. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. You know, in general, I think we all have, but certainly teens even more so than adults, have gone through two years of serious trauma. And we have to recognize that this has been a traumatic event that has, you know, form elements of post-traumatic stress attached to it, which includes this, you know, mask wearing and basically fear of the unknown and not knowing how things are going to be and what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't forget, we've had during our pandemic uh, periods where 
it seemed to be okay. And then another surge and then another variant with more you know, uh, significant numbers and so on. So again, teenagers don't have the, the wherewithal, the, fine, the, the, the emotional and cognitive ability to process that as well as some of us adults. And some of us adults don't process it very well either. Yeah, it's one thing for this to be affecting teens. Uh, parents obviously worried about it, and I think they were pro- they're probably very worried about the possibility of long-term impacts because of this. What's your take on that? Uh, I think that that's uh, a, a reasonable worry. Uh, I think that we will see in the future uh, the things that the, the teens have gone through will start coming out and and be there for a long time for some of them, especially those who had pre, you know, prior uh, issues going on that were just exacerbated by the uh, uh, pandemic issues. So yes, I think you know, I think it's really important to monitor what's going on with your child and uh, to make sure you get them the help they need if 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 it looks like they need help. To not think that anxiety or depression is just going to go away with time. I I am curious about something, and and perhaps this occurred in too early a stage of of the development of modern-day psychiatry, but there is an analogous situation in this country, is there not? When we had the 1918-1919 flu epidemic, which mostly killed uh, very old but also very young people, unlike COVID, you had a situation there, too, where you had kids who were wearing masks all the time, depending on the city they lived in. Many of their peers would literally drop dead in the street from that flu. Does anybody know how that generation progressed after that? Because it might offer a clue about this one. You know, I think that's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure, but... I guess in my not being sure, I've never heard anything about that. I mean, it was only after this pandemic started that the 1918 flu, you know, started gaining a little, a little uh, traction even. But so, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know what that's about, but it'd be interesting. You know, I think one of the differences here today on, on the whole mental health front for teens, you know, when we compare to 100 years ago, you know, is the uh, advent of social media and the internet and, and what all that does to kids uh, you know how they how they transfer information, how they learn information from each other, how they communicate to each other. So uh, you know, there's there's an awful lot more that they're coping with than they certainly did a hundred years ago. Dr. Galbert, thank you again. That's Dr. Mo Galbert, Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. The United Nations says more than four million people have left Ukraine because of the war, but not all of them could just, you know, pack up and go on their own. There are many people with disabilities who need help, and that is where Joni and Friends, which is based in Agora Hills, has stepped in. It has a team that has helped people with disabilities escape eastern uh, Ukraine to go to uh, Poland. John Nugent is president, chief operating officer of Joni and Friends, and he actually has just return from Poland. John, welcome back and welcome to the show. Uh, tell us in, in Poland what exactly you folks have been doing. Yeah, thank you. First, thank you so much for having me on. Yes, I just got back from Poland Sunday evening. And what we've been doing there is we have a team on the ground inside of Ukraine. And it's headed up by uh, a wonderful woman named Galina. And uh, what Galena has been able to do is arrange for seven evacuations to date. Over 300 families living with disabilities have been evacuated. That's about 125 families, 300 people in, in total. And what we do is we get them across the border, and then we provide shelter and food at, uh, at a local hotel about an hour and a half away from the border. 
And then from there, we arranged for transportation and housing uh, in Germany and also in the Netherlands. Okay. These people, how are they being taken care of now? And, and I guess now and in the future. Right. Well, the situation, first of all, the situation in Ukraine is quite dire. People living with disabilities are typically the uh, most forgotten um, and they're the most vulnerable. And uh, due to accessibility issues, due to health issues, um, you know, and of course, due to the war, caretakers have left them. Uh, they've been, many have been abandoned. And so uh, we are able to, um, people actually call Johnny and friends and let us know uh, families that they know of, loved ones that they know of, suffering with disabilities that have been trapped in Ukraine. And we funnel that information to Galita, uh, who's able to go ahead and arrange for their, for their evacuation. Uh, when they come across the border, uh, I was there just a few just a few days ago. When they come across the border, they you just see it on their face. They're they're entering an unknown world with an unknown future, and um, but we are able to go ahead and um, you know provide them love, provide them care, and give them hope for a for a brighter future. How did your organization get involved in this to begin with? What kind of of background did you have? Well, we are a disability ministry. This is what we do. This ministry has been around for over 40 years, and this is what we do. And we have, we have groups of people and partners all around the world caring for people living with disabilities, uh, lifting them off the ground and giving them a wheelchair, having a physical therapist there and a mechanic there to make sure that wheelchair fits perfectly. But did you, uh, ever, did you have, ever have a situation where you were involved in a war zone? <laughs> no. No, no, this, is, this would be our first. This would be our first. And uh, through the grace of God, uh, we've been able to piece it together to provide um, hope and provide support for people living with disabilities in Ukraine and get them out of Ukraine in these war-torn areas. Talk to us a bit about the, the relationship you, you formed with these people who you helped and, and how they responded to you. Yeah, um, you know, first of all, I call Galena like the, the angel of Ukraine. Um, she's an amazing woman. And she just loves these loves these people, and we're able to get them across the border. And um, oh, excuse me. Nope. Go ahead. You still there? There we go. There we go. Oh. And um, we we you know the relationships we have people um, that are both in the Netherlands and both in Germany. The families want to stay together, so we do our best to make sure they all different families from various villages. They want to stay together. And so as a group, they'll go to the Netherlands. We'll have people in the Netherlands, and as a group, they'll go to Germany. And it's there that we get to understand their needs, we get to understand their fears, and we do our best to support their needs and assuage their fears. Since this is, as you said, the first time you've been involved as an organization in a, in a war zone uh, theater, so to speak, um, is there something that, that perhaps you encountered that you just could not and did not plan for and really surprised you in either a good or a bad way? Yeah, I would, I would think that, um, I think that the disabled being forgotten, abandoned, um, there they are. You see those pictures of those high rise buildings, people living with disabilities on those, on those upper floors, they have no ability to get down into the underground shelters. Um, a mom told me that uh, she lived up on the ninth or tenth floor. When the sirens go off, my son is 18 years old, and I can't bring my son down to the underground shelters. I said, "What do you do?" I put him in the bathtub, and we just 
and we hmm. huddle in the ba- we huddle in the bathroom. So hmm. I, I think it's this whole notion that the most vulnerable are typically the most forgotten, and that that weighs heavily on our hearts at, at Johnny and Friends, and we want to do all that we can. To, to bless them and to evacuate them. John, quickly, it's a before, bit of safe situation. B- before we let you go, a quick answer. We, we all hope that this ends sooner than later. Uh, if it doesn't, though, do you, do you plan more trips? Yes, we've had seven trips so far, and we will continue. Uh, we're basically averaging an evacuation a week, an evacuation could be anywhere from 40 to 60 uh, people. That would be about 20 to 30 families. All right. John Nugent, just back from Poland. John, thank you, and thank you for all the work you're doing. We have an update on one of the many people from Ukraine that we have been speaking with over the past few weeks. Platon is from Kharkiv, which has been under heavy Russian attack. Uh, Platon, first of all, thanks for uh, coming back with us. And when last we spoke to you, you had uh, left for, I guess, the western part of Ukraine. And you were telling us that uh, your dad and a a friend of, of his had just survived a, uh, a bombing that was nearby, if I remember correctly. Give us an update on, first of all, how you're doing and how are they doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, well, I'm doing fine. I'm now in the western part of Ukraine as I planned to. It took me a while to get here. Actually, I spent like three days on the road because the traffic jams were enormous because all the people were really scared of those terror attacks that started. And uh, I mean... There are not a lot of safe roads that were available at that time. So basically, everyone was standing in this huge one traffic jam all along the country. Yep. Um, I'm like relatively safe right now. My dad is still in Kharkiv. Um, that's his choice. He stayed there to, you know, take care of everything that is happening with with our belongings, I guess, and our past life. Um, he's relatively okay. I mean, he's still, like, slipping under under the bomb, and he hears all that every day. Uh, but he's alive, and I'm grateful to that. I understand you've been looking to help out in schools. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, a lot of people and a lot of pupils also are displaced inside the country right now, and... Uh, despite the COVID, I mean, the, the, the process of studying is still going on. And as I have some certain qualification, I proposed my help uh, to teach physics in a local school. Um, I do not make any progress in it right now. I will visit the school on Monday and have a discussion of like how it might work. And uh, hopefully I can be helpful in some way uh, to the community, which is so willingly accepting me right now. Do you feel confident that you're safe in the part of Ukraine that you are now in, uh, considering that the Russians have, as you know, I'm sure that, you know, they've bombed, uh, you know, the outskirts of uh, Lviv, which is almost uh, on top of the Polish border? Okay, let me be clear on this. No, there is no safe place in Ukraine right now. There is no place that can be 100% safe. And that is for sure, and that is happening all around the country. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, when United States president visited Poland, there were bombings like 20 kilometers away from the border with Poland. So, no, there is no safe place here at all. And, uh, I mean... The most, the most 
scary thing to me right now is not that all this is happening, but the fact that I'm getting to it, like I'm getting used to the situation and that is the most terrible thing. Like it becomes my my everyday life. And that is what is scary. It's scary. It's scary because because it's sort of becoming your normal existence. Is that it? Yeah, like it is a new normal, and I do not want this to be my new normal, and I do not want the whole other world to feel like it is a new normal. It is not. And uh, again, every other day, whatever people are saying, like. It becomes calmer, it becomes safer. No, it is not. Like, this. the thing is happening right now, and the bombs are still falling. And every other day is not better than the previous one. It is the same terrible thing. From a psychological standpoint, you bring up a really good point, and I'm sure that, you know, this is something that you never could have ever perceived in your wildest dreams or nightmares growing up as a child in speaking with other with other people friends people you you've met as you've been forced to move psychologically talk to us a little bit about how it's weighing what you're hearing from other people as well how it's weighing on them um it it, it is really difficult to say because i believe like my my, my close ones like i i live with three other people here in the apartment where i'm in and um I mean, we do not really talk about this. Like, we do not have this, you know, reflection kind of thing where we sit under the cup of tea and, you know, discuss what is happening, what is the progress of Ukrainian forces, or I don't know. There is no such kind of reflection. We're just, you know, going into some escapism. I don't know, like doing some other things, not to not to talk about this, not to think about this, because it is very it is it is very stressful i finally like contacted my therapist and i believe i will have like my first session after a huge pause uh, hmm. like basically since the beginning of the war i will have my first session i believe there will be some questions to cover yeah i, okay. I, I believe yeah. you're right yeah. platon stay safe thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us thanks for having me have a good day you're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens and for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Amazon has been criticized over the years by labor rights groups for trying to squash efforts by workers to form unions. Whatever efforts by Amazon that have been made up to this point worked, but only up to this point. Yeah, Amazon workers in Staten Island, New York, voted today to unionize. It's the first successful American organizing effort in the company's history. With us now is John Logan. Director of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. John, thanks for being with us. This is a big win for those workers in Staten Island working for Amazon, but it is also, I suspect, a big win after many years of not having big wins for organized labor. Yeah, it's a truly (laughs) jaw-dropping result. I mean, I think there's no bigger prize for the labor movement than winning a union election at Amazon. Most people would say that Amazon, you know, is the wealthiest, the most sophisticated, the most determined corporation on the planet to keep unions out. It's the hardest place to win a union election. And so the fact that 
any union won at Amazon is truly amazing. You would not have predicted that two or three years ago. But the fact that we have the Amazon Labor Union, which is an independent organization, which doesn't have the backing of any big powerful union, doesn't have a lot of experienced organizers or lawyers, as far as we know, um, and ran a very unconventional campaign from start to finish, um, makes it even more amazing. But, but it's a huge event for the entire labor movement, as you suggest, I mean, I imagine that going forward, this will act as a huge inspiration for other Amazon workers, you know, who will look at Staten Island. And, you know, there, there's nothing exceptional about Amazon yeah. at Staten Island. It's not like you can win there, but you can't win anywhere else. So, jo John, so, look, looking yeah. across the country, then, you, you feel this could spur more union votes for Amazon workers oh, literally sure. across the nation? Yeah, no, it, I'm, I'm quite positive it will spur a great deal of more labor activism at Amazon. Some of that activism will take the form of petitioning for NLRB elections. Other uh, forms of activism, you know, there's groups called Amazonians United. And then at the Amazon Fresh stores, there's a group called Amazon Workers United. They're not interested in petitioning for NLRB elections. They want to take direct action at the workplace, you know, strikes, other things to improve working conditions that way. But so I think you'll see a variety of these things, but I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure at this moment, all over the country, there are pro-union workers at Amazon. They're looking at what happened in Staten Island and they're saying, if they can do it there, we can do it here. But, but for the immediate future, would a union vote in just one small mm -hmm. slice of Amazon, which of yeah. course is a, is a mammoth, as you yes. mentioned, a mammoth organization with tentacles all over the, the, the yep. planet. Yep. Uh, how much of a difference in the short run is it really going to make? Right. Well, so the difference is not in the, num the numbers. I mean, you have 6,000 new union members, sorry, 8,000, 8,000 in Staten Island. Uh, there was 6,000 at Bessemer. It's not about numbers. I mean, those kinds of figures, even if they, they organize 10 warehouses or, you know, 15, in terms of the depth of the crisis facing organized labor in the United States, you know, the decline has been going on for three or four decades now. Um, it's virtually meaningless. But in terms of, you know, the feeling that if you can win at Amazon, you can win anywhere. And the excitement and, you know, um, the, 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 you know, just the desire for people to get involved and to be optimistic, and especially young people who have really been at the forefront of many of the uh, most high-profile and most successful organizing campaigns we've seen. So you're right. You know, in terms of Amazon, it's not you know one warehouse is one warehouse, but I think in terms of the sort of symbolism of the victory and the inspiration that it will provide or could potentially provide, uh, you know. A, other Amazon warehouses and at employers beyond Amazon, I, I think it's absolutely huge. I mean, I, I would go so far as to say, you know, I think it's, you know, probably the, the biggest single 
uh, organizing victory of the past 50 years and you know pretty close to, to coming to the biggest single one for the past 100 years. And th there's a second part to this too, if I can just say quickly. You know, okay. People have a direct relationship with Amazon and Starbucks in a way that the American public never did with General Motors or Ford Motor Company in the 1930s. So they're engaged with the issues. You know, these subjects are, uh, companies are subjected to the public gaze in a way that is, is very unusual. People are paying attention to the issues in a way that hasn't happened for decades. And I, I think you need that. You need people to understand the issues and feel that they have a stake in their outcome. You know, if we're ever to have a sort of national debate around the pitiful state of, of labor rights in the United States, and we'll never get meaningful labor law reform unless people feel engaged with the issues, unless they feel yeah. they have a stake in the issues. And it's campaigns exactly like Amazon, also Starbucks, you know, particularly yeah. okay. Amazon today, that will create that. John, John will have to leave it there. John, thank okay. you. John Logan, Director of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. A big lawsuit over the homeless crisis filed against L.A. City. It has been settled. The city has agreed to spend $3 billion over the next five years to create as many as 16,000 beds for homeless units or for homeless units for homeless people. Yeah, that's about 60 percent of the city's homeless population. The lawsuit also includes L.A. County, which has not settled, though the city says the county will have to help. With us now to talk more about this attorney, Elizabeth Mitchell, uh, who represents the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights, which filed the lawsuit. Elizabeth, thank you for taking some time for us. Are you pleased, first of all, with this settlement with the city? Sure. Thanks for having me. I uh, am very pleased. It is, I think, is a huge step forward. We've seen this model be very successful in other places, and so we're looking forward to being able to do this at scale in Los Angeles. Um, as I as I had indicated before, it's interesting because when we first started this lawsuit, um, we were demanding three things: shelter and services and safe streets. And with this agreement, we got sort of two out of the three. Right, shelter and safe streets, but um, the co the county is missing in this, and that's the services piece. And so, in order to really have a holistic agreement, that needs to be in place. And so, we're looking forward to hopefully getting the county to jump in soon. And, and why is the county missing? Well, it, you know, it's. It, I think that might be a better question for the county. They uh, have acknowledged that they have and they know that they have the sole responsibility for the mental health care, for substance abuse, uh, um, disorders, for really need more care than can be helped in a city shelter. They are the ones who have the sole responsibility for the services. But, um, you know, e even though they've acknowledged that this is their responsibility and they've acknowledged that they have failed in those responsibilities, they're kind of sticking with the tagline that they're doing enough. And I think that anybody that's looking around at what's going on is going to is going to disagree wholeheartedly with them. So um, I, I think that that we're, you know, the, the city and the county have historically kind of finger pointed at each other. It's kind of egg. So this was really the, the city stepping up first and saying, hey, we'll do our part. County, will you do yours? So I guess we'll wait and see how the county responds. Well, let, let's 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 move that in that direction. How hopeful, how confident are you at this point that the, the county will will settle? Um, well, 
given the comments of the lawyer on Twitter today, uh, not extremely hopeful at the moment, but you never know because a lawyer has to do what his clients want to do. So it's not really up to the lawyer. It's up to the five uh, supervisors to really make their decision. So, you know, we, we would love to see them engage on this. I know that the city has been waiting a long time for them to engage in this, but just couldn't wait anymore, and neither could we. Um, but, you know, if they don't, the, the lawsuit against the county will certainly progress. We'll keep fighting that one. And there's there's some other things that we're thinking about as well. The alliance, uh, in, in partnership with some other folks, filed a ballot initiative up in Sacramento recently, and that's something we're exploring the county as well. So... Uh, there's a lot of different fronts being considered, but obviously the goal would always be, uh, and the hope would always be for the county to do this voluntarily and not have to be forced by a judge or a jury or voters. Okay, but in the meantime, can the city go ahead uh, effectively with its end without the county's participation, or would everything just have to be on hold until there's an outcome there? No, it's definitely not on hold. It can move forward with a shelter piece. Uh, with the public regulation piece. What it can't address is the folks that are really in crisis. So the people that you see that are having significant mental illness uh, issues, like or are in psychosis of some sort, those are the people that have what they call high acuity, and those are the ones that um, that are really the county's obligation and really the only, only ones that the county can address. And so because of that... Um, those are the, the real high acuity and high needs folks have to be addressed by the county. But everything else and everyone else that is there um, can be addressed by the city. So I know they haven't settled, but will the county help the city? I'm sorry, can you ask that again? I, I know the county hasn't settled, but will the county help the city? Well, again, that's a question that you're going to have to ask the county. I mean, it's it, it would be the ideal would be a joint agreement with the city and the county together. That is certainly the ideal. Um, but whether the county will help the city, I mean, I guess we will find out. They, they have ser- some services and some partnership with outreach already and that kind of a thing. But um uh, I think that they are, at the moment, not stepping up nearly to the extent that they need to. So I suppose we'll see. Okay. Attorney Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you for joining us. She represents the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights, which filed the lawsuit. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens and for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felt. Well, the United States now a step closer to legal marijuana everywhere. Yes, we're talking at the federal level. The House passing a bill today, a bill to legalize pot at the federal level and eliminate criminal penalties for those who sell or possess it. And it now heads to the Senate, where passing might be possible this time around. With us is John Schroyer, who is chief correspondent for Marijuana Business Daily. John, thanks for being with us. So if this ends up becoming federal law, what impact would it have on, on, for example, all these marijuana businesses that some places like here in California have? It could have an immense effect, uh, a transformative one nationwide, um, if for nothing else but the fact that it would uh, open up uh, essentially access to the uh, to the modern banking system to all cannabis companies, uh, which is currently basically still off limits. Um, but to, uh, to get to the larger point, um, pretty much everyone in the, uh, in the political scene gives it very little chance of succeeding in the Senate. So, um, pretty much everyone that, uh, that 
of our sources basically uh, considers this largely symbolic. Okay, so I guess the majority of Democrats would likely be behind this, majority of Republicans not. In fact, I guess this isn't something that would be so close that the uh, the vice president would have to come in and cast a vote. Uh, Republicans are not going to oppo- are, are going to be opposed to this. Yeah, that's the most likely uh, scenario at this point. I mean, uh, this same bill was passed uh, before uh, by the Democrats back in December 2020, and and the Senate never even uh, took that bill up, basically. Um, And so that's one of the reasons that this is seen as essentially a non-starter in the Senate. On top of that, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, has is planning on introducing his own version of a federal marijuana legalization bill. Uh, that's probably going to happen later this month, um, and and that and and basically uh, Schumer is probably going to prioritize that bill uh, instead of trying to push uh, this this bill from the House. And what's the main sticking point? Is it a, a purely philosophical one? Yeah, uh, that yes and no. It, it's kind of hard to tell, honestly, because there's so much disagreement even just within the Democratic Party on how to go about legalizing marijuana at the federal level. There's just, it's not really um, a question of whether or not to legalize at this point. It's more, it's more a a policy question of kind of what to include in a uh, sweeping legalization bill. Um, And there's a lot of disagreement uh, among Democrats on that and, and, and between Democrats and Republicans on that. You know, it, it, it causes an awful lot of confusion. In fact, you know, in, in the fact that we live in a state like here in California, like so many who have legalized the use of marijuana, so it can be sold legally, it can be used legally. But the fact that you're breaking federal law leaves a lot of people conflicted. How important is it to bring this all together and, and make it legal uh, nationwide? I I mean I it, it depends on kind of who you ask I guess I I think it's arguably very important um and and a lot of people will very easily frame this as a criminal justice measure and a social justice uh, question essentially um particularly for anyone who lives in uh, you know a lot of states that aren't like California that don't have uh, legal marijuana basically because there are plenty of states across the country where uh, consumers can still get arrested and sent to prison for years on end for for consuming and using or or selling uh maybe illegally uh marijuana yeah Uh, i just want to point out but in asking that question too i'm not trying to advocate that it should be i'm just saying that there's a lot of confusion amongst people uh, as a non as a non-user myself uh but for friends who do use i mean it's it's just the the confusion factor and the fact that for instance uh, a company that sells marijuana uh can't keep it inside can't go to a bank because bank banks are federally mandated right yeah, although that's the, even the banking situation is a very weird, nuanced one because uh, there are a lot of banks that actually work with uh, with marijuana companies. They just don't really advertise that fact. They kind of um, they, they kind of keep that really on on a low profile uh, situation because. Um, because they don't want to run any kind of risk that federal bank regulators are going to take issue with that, essentially. Um, and so it's there's even been guidance from the U.S. Treasury Department that banks can can work with cannabis companies as long as they follow certain uh, certain uh, rules, essentially. But that said, it's still generally, you know, kind of off limits for most large banks like like Bank of America, for instance. Or, so, you know. so I'm curious, John, because I mean, usually on something as controversial as this, there are lobbyists for each side. Right. So so sure. who, who are the main lobbyists against 
the initiative uh, to legalize it? Oh, lobbyists against? <laughs> um, man, uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, there, I mean, the, the most well-known lobby that is against marijuana legalization is a group called Project um, SAM, which is, uh, stands for Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Uh, that's headed by a former Obama administration official named Kevin Sabet, actually. And their argument is uh, essentially um, a lot of, in, in many ways, a throwback to the, to the 80s and 90s. Uh, they believe that uh, marijuana is still uh, a gateway drug in many sense, in, in, in many ways, and um, can be dangerous for, for youth, for instance, and uh, anyone who's, you know, underage, uh, possibly using it, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and, and they're also in favor of things like uh, marijuana potency caps, which, which are uh, in effect in a couple of states, um, but, you know, obviously not in effect in California. Um, and so, and, and there are also still plenty of members of Congress that just straight up don't believe that marijuana should be legalized too. That's that's still a, a very real factor as well. Okay. John, thank you. John Schroyer, Chief Correspondent for Marijuana Business Daily. Well, we've all heard about how bad secondhand smoke is from cigarettes, but we haven't ever heard much about marijuana smoke and if it poses any kind of danger to those around people smoking it. Well, that is until now. A study from UC Berkeley finds smoking pot in a bong creates concentrations of fine particulate matter four times four times greater than concentrations after smoking a cigarette or a, a, a hookah pipe. Uh, with us now, the study's authors, Catherine Hammond, professor of environmental health si- uh, sciences at UC Berkeley, and Patton Wynn, a uh, graduate researcher at the university. Uh, thanks both for joining us. Uh, first of all, Catherine, we'll start with you. How did you come to this conclusion that secondhand bong smoke is dangerous? Uh, basically, from research, we were looking at the data uh, Patton is the one who actually came up with the idea and the concerns and uh, uh, brought those to me as a professor, and we decided to investigate it. And when we looked at our measurements uh, based on – I had 30 years of experience investigating secondhand tobacco smoke. And when I looked at this compared to that, uh, I was rather surprised uh, at how much higher it is, given especially how – our knowledge of its adverse health effects of secondhand tobacco smoke have been growing over the past, past several decades. So, Patton, uh, what is the evidence that that people are? So, we know that the uh, the particular mat, particular matter particulate there we go matter uh, is extensive coming from the smoke emanating from bongs. Is there evidence though that directly correlates with illness in humans? So, our study did not measure or um, look to measure how the exposures to um, secondhand smoke in bongs can lead to specific adverse health effects. However, what we did find were there were very high levels of uh, fine particles, and these fine particles have been associated um, uh, in long-term studies and short-term studies of how exposure to fine particles can lead to adverse health effects. Catherine, is, is there oh, – go ahead. You're going to respond. Hey, Pat, is absolutely correct. I would add to that that um, some of the mechanisms that have been known to lead to, uh, for instance, uh, heart attacks and other adverse cardiovascular effects um, from uh, secondhand tobacco smoke uh, include uh, disrupting the uh, blood vessels and uh, affecting the lining of the blood vessels. And those effects have actually been 
demonstrated also from secondhand cannabis smoke. Well, Catherine, is there a misconception out there that marijuana smoke is not harmful? Apparently so, yes. Uh, I, I think the, the lack of, evidence, of direct evidence uh, has led to an assumption of safety, and I think that's a misperception. Uh, if, if, in any kind of uh, normal way of trying to look at the data, one would, assume, would start with the assumption that it's, uh, we, we can be guided by the health effects of secondhand tobacco smoke and of fine particles as a starting point. Um, that should be our starting point. And, and, and Patton, is there a way for people, because after all, it is legal recreational use uh, in California and elsewhere in some other parts of the country. Is there a way to mitigate the harmful effect? So I would say one way to do that is to reduce exposure. And the best way to reduce exposure is to not smoke indoors, um, because our research showed that when you smoke, when you're smoking in your home indoors, you're exposed to very high concentrations, and that can expose non-smokers and children or elderly folks that are also present in the home. And also, it's really important to mention that our study found that hours after smoking stops, the concentrations still were very were high and over EPA limits to have a um, unhealthy situation for sensitive groups. Should, should people smoke pot alone then? Catherine, do you that want to take is, that one? Or okay, uh, Patton? That's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's really up to um, the person who's smoking, whatever they decide. But uh, our research really wants to express how non-smokers can be affected. And so it's really looking at how secondhand smoke proliferates uh, and what we can do to um, reduce exposures of others. Well, but it seems like the only real solution to how you can reduce the exposure to others is just not to smoke from a bong near others, right? So, yeah, I, I think the way to say that is is uh, we often talk about smoke-free environments for tobacco right. products, and I think we need to think about smoke-free environments for um, all all smoking products, um, and that that really should be our approach. So so one of the concerns you both have is that a lot of places where it says no smoking, it applies to tobacco smoke, but not necessarily to marijuana. Is that it? Uh, yes, or it's perceived as such. I see. Okay. Okay. Uh, thanks both for joining us again. We've been speaking with Catherine Hammond, Professor of Environmental Health Sciences at UC Berkeley and a Patton Nguyen, a uh, graduate researcher at the university. That'll do it for today's show. Uh, for Charles Feldman, I'm Chris Seaton's in today. For Mike Simpson, Mike will be back again on Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to KNX In-Depth.